Confronted by the Resurrection, Part 4, from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. This morning we continue to look at Jesus' post-resurrection appearances during a period of 40 days before his ascension back to heaven. Now during this period of time, he appears and disappears. He comes and goes. Not randomly, but his appearances are rather targeted. Targeted to his followers who don't yet know. They're feeling a little lost and they don't actually know what their mission is. So Jesus is dealing pastorally with the group and also with particular individuals. Now in this, in this gospel he has dealt with, already has he, has he dealt with Mary Magdalene, he has dealt with Thomas, and in this final chapter there is particular attention given to the Apostle Peter, who still is feeling perhaps a little, a little guilty, a little ashamed of his denial of Jesus. Now in, a, in, a, in Australia we have an expression uh, which is gone fishing. That is uh, an expression that is sometimes used to let people know that a, that a business that a business is closed for a period of time while the owner takes a break. Now these days of, of quarantine, it might be perhaps an enforced break. But the phrase describes what the disciples are doing. This time it happens on the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. And so much of Jesus' ministry actually happened around the Sea of Galilee. This is a, a famous biblical landmark that if you ever visit the land of Israel, this is one of the must-go-to places. Yes, this is the same lake from where Jesus originally called his first disciples. And certainly from that time, a lot has happened in the last three years. Now, as with all of Scripture, God has some important lessons for us this morning. So what does it look like and, and what does God do with us in those times of wondering and, and soul searching when perhaps we're feeling we don't actually know what we're doing? Now, in those times when we might be feeling a little lost, how does he treat us? Well, we have some clues for us this morning. First of all, he gives us a little freedom. Freedom. Verses 1 to 3. 1 to 3. So uh, just to give you a note that all of, our, all of our headings this morning are with a letter F. So it might be a little easier to follow as well. Verses 1 to 3. And this is what it, what it says. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Now as the disciples were feeling a little disoriented, they went back to something that they knew best, to something that they were familiar with. Something with which they felt comfortable and secure, and that was fishing. Now there is nothing wrong with that. 
in times of crisis or uncertainty, we all want and indeed need something to fall back upon. As usual, uh, Peter takes the initiative and says, I'm going, and the other guys say, well, we'll join you. And, and there is certainly some, uh, there is a certain amount of safety in picking up those familiar nets, uh, loading them up into the boat and, and going out to sea. We might even call them safety nets because it provided them with a certain amount of safety in uncertain times. Now notice how these fellows, it tells us here that they went out at night. Yes, there is a practical reason why good fishing happens at night. What they would do is get a lamp or light and and the fish would be attracted to the light and then just as the, the fish are attracted to the light, they then throw their nets overboard and bingo, they have their catch. But more than that, these fellows were still scared of the authorities. As we saw in the, in the Thomas incident when Jesus appeared to his disciples, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So going out at night was also because of safety. But there is also another reason why perhaps they needed to go fishing. Remember, there was no social security. There was, they needed to provide for themselves and for the family. They needed to feed themselves to earn a living. And while they were with Jesus, Jesus uh, provided for them and the group of of ladies that supported them, they, they, people gave to their ministry, to their mission. But now that Jesus is gone, they had to support themselves and their families again. And their original fishing trade would do that. So in, in times like this, when, when we, there, there are obviously needs. It's not just about wanting to, to go, but there was actually some needs, some physical needs that needed to be addressed. And obviously they had to do that. But there is more. There is more to this story. In the next, in, in verse 3, there is also frustration. Frustration. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught Nothing. As I said, the, the desire to retreat when things got rough wasn't totally wrong. The desire to eat and to provide for their families certainly wasn't wrong. But these guys had already been called not to fish for fish, but to fish for men. That's what Jesus told them when he called them. This will be the mission and Jesus had given them a new purpose in life. So the hidden danger in the, in, the, in the seemingly harmless activity of fishing is that they were not just running from uncertainty, but they could also be running away from obedience as well. They were called to trust him for their emotional, their physical and their financial well-being. And of course this would be easier said than done. An important point from this story is that Wandering from Jesus' call often leads to frustration. 
Certainly the story of Jonah has a lot to say about that. And verse 3 says that they fished all night and caught nothing. Now, no matter what your reasons might be, and there are many of them, moving away from what God wants you to do, you will find that will it will lead to frustration. It will lead to emptiness. It will lead to empty nets. Empty nets represent a lack of fulfillment. But no matter how much effort we put into something, if we know in our hearts that it is not something that God wants us to do, it will be frustrating. Our labours will produce little that has any eternal value and significance. So we need to go back to what God calls us to do. And when we don't know what that is, we need to seek his wisdom. So he will show us his will for our lives. Verses 4 to 5, there is friendship. Friendship. Verse 4 says, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends! Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. As always, God will not let his children wander too far before he catches up with them once again. Oftentimes, when he catches up with us, it will start with a question. This time, it's friends, haven't you any fish? Verse 5, it's, it's obvious that the disciples at first did not recognize him. At times when I have gone fishing, uh, I have sometimes been asked that question as you're, sitting, as you're, as you're fi- sitting or fishing from the pier or from the shore, and some, some tourists or some passers-by, they come along and they see that you're there with your bucket and with your rod and uh, your line in the water, and they will ask you, have you caught anything? Well, mate, uh, if, you, if, you have, if you've been there for a few hours and yet have you haven't caught anything, it might be a very frustrating, very frustrating question to, uh, to answer. Now, if you have a, a bucket full of nice salmon, the answer would be pretty obvious. But Jesus was on the shore, about a hundred metres away. And Jesus did not have to ask the question, as he already knew. But the disciples didn't yet know who he was. And here we have one of the lesser known miracles in the Bible. They respond by actually saying, no. So I can already picture the, uh, the headlines in the, in the Galilean tabloids the following morning. Fishermen tell the truth. Now that is a miracle in itself, right? Now, even though God knows us better than we know ourselves, he asks us questions to help us find out where we are. What are some of the more famous questions in the Bible that God asks his servants? He called to Adam. He says, where are you? In Genesis 3.9. And Adam had to basically admit, I'm actually trying to hide from you. When God heard Sarah uh, in, in Genesis laugh about after overhearing that she was going to get pregnant at 80 years of age, God asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
That's Genesis chapter 18. And then the Lord asked another of his servants, Elijah, who had fled into the desert and he was hiding in a cave. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And with some of us, he could be asking the same question right now. What are you doing with your life? Where are you going with it? Where do I fit into your plans? Am I just an appendix, an add-on, or am I central to, to your future, to your plans? Is your life bearing fruit? God might be coming alongside of us, even this morning. God wants your honest answer. In verse 6, there is fruitfulness, fruitfulness. He said, throw your, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net because of the large number of fish. Remember that at, at this point they are still in their boat. A short distance from the shore where unbeknown to them, they were, they were talking to none other than Jesus. And in the midst of their disappointment of having caught nothing, this unknown character is, is, is shouting from the shore. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. In other words, switch sides on the boat. Now, if you're a fisherman, you will know that this doesn't appear to be a very, a, a, in first instance, doesn't appear to be a very smart suggestion to some seasoned fisherman. I mean, if the fish aren't on this side of the boat, it's unlikely they're going to be on the other side of the boat. The distance isn't all that, that great, the location. It's basically the same location. Remember that Jesus made a similar suggestion about three years earlier in the same lake and the disciples were surrounded by a miracle catch there. But at that time he told, uh, in Luke chapter 5, he told Peter to go into deeper water. So it was a different location, slightly different location. And though it didn't make much sense to Peter then, he still said, because you say so, I will let down the nets. And that's what they had the miracle catch. Many times following Jesus' commands sounds odd, might not even make much sense. You have thousands of hungry people and he tells them to sit down and to wait for their meal after a kid turns up with two fish and five loaves. Then he tells us to turn the other cheek and, and to love those who, who hate us. But some of these things uh, might be at the, right at the top of the things that just don't make any sense at all. And yet, that's what Jesus calls us to do. Telling people to put their faith in a man who, who died on a cross in order to forgive our sins and to, to give us eternal life sounds really odd, perhaps, to some. Yet God uses the foolish things to show us who he truly is. 
It's not always about what seems the wisest or indeed the most powerful that brings honour to God, but the weakest and sometimes even the foolish, but we need to trust him. If you're going to receive the answer that God has for you, you are going to have to do what he says, when he says it, and where he says to do it. There are Christians who have prayed for an answer to their problems, but when the answer came, they didn't like the answer. They already, you see, had it fixed in their minds, in their head, how God should do it. After all, they say, doesn't the Bible say that he will give you the desires of your heart? Yes. But you first need to delight yourself in the Lord. Many times God is not asking you to do a great thing that will get lots of attention. He's only asking that you do the simple thing, the little things, and and obey what he says consistently, cheerfully. I like what Eugene Peterson calls it. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. That is, that is perseverance. Continue to obey God in the little things, but follow in the same direction. I like that because it involves trust, perseverance. And as the disciples followed instructions, the results were immediate, they were miraculous, they were quite, quite impressive. Now in verses 7 to 8, we have a familiar voice. Familiar voice. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him, he said, he said, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. And the disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they, they were not that far from shore, about a hundred metres. Now in times of uncertainty, um, someone we know, A familiar face can certainly lift our spirits. John couldn't understand what was happening, but he he knew that, that this was unnatural, this was more than unnatural, this was supernatural. He looked at the fish, then turned around, I'm just picturing this, he turned around and looked at the man who was on the shore, and straight away his memories came alive and he made he, he said this is this is the Lord I have seen this before three years before in fact when the same thing happened in the same place with the same results that's when the penny dropped John spun around shouted to Peter it is the Lord the same Lord who had not allowed them to catch anything all night. He controlled the fish where they were moving. He is creator after all. He controlled the fish from swimming into the net that whole night and he controlled those that swam into the net that morning after all those hours. He is the one who calls all of creation. He calls the fish. He knows where they are. Do you recognise God at work in your particular situation? Frustrating as it might be, 
He could be working right there. Let him lead you. And even though the disciples didn't recognize him in the frustration of the empty nets, they certainly recognized him when the nets were full. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't even recognize the blessings of God even when their nets are full. Perhaps in times of frustration and empty shelves and empty nets and empty pantries, you might be able to turn to God and recognize his work there. Can you see God even when you cannot feel him? Isn't it good to know that he has been there all along? God calls us out of our frustration and gives us his blessings. And then fellowship in verses 9 to 14. Fellowship. This is our last point. Let me read it for you. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same thing with fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I must say that over the years there have been quite a bit of speculation and superstitions with the significance of the exact number of fish, 153 Now, let me ask you, why do fishermen count what they catch? Well, one short answer is so they can brag about it for years to come. A catch of 153 would have been some type of record, I'm assuming, and if you or I were there, we would have done the same. It's etched in your memory. You, you, if you ever done any fishing, you would know the places you have caught those fish. Doesn't matter how old you get, you will say, yeah, this is the place. This was a wonderful time, a wonderful catch. You know the place, the time. It was great. Important point here is that the nets are no longer empty. It was God who suddenly and miraculously rewards their effort because they listened to his instructions. But the event becomes even more special when he cooks breakfast for them. Ask yourself, where did he get the fish? Jesus, that is. Where did he get the bread? The charcoal. Where did he get the fire? I have no idea. But Jesus always supplies and provides what you and I need. Many times we don't even have to wonder or ask where he got it from. He not only gives them a meal, that's his disciples, but more than that, what was really special was the fellowship that he provided for them. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. This is, yes, it is very familiar language to the Last Supper, isn't it? 
almost, except that Jesus had said that he would, he would not do it again in that manner until it found fulfillment in his kingdom. In other words, until he came again. And all of us, all of us believers await that glorious day. There is another important detail here. Note that Jesus tells them in verse 10 to bring some of their fish. Even after, even after he had already cooked some of them in, in, in the coals, he asked them to bring their, their catch. What is the lesson? You see, God doesn't need us to provide for him or to help him. He is self-sufficient. Whether we chip in or not, he will do what needs to be done to accomplish his purposes. But he invites us to be part of his plan. Even if he doesn't need what we can give him, he wants it anyway because he still wants it to do it with us. Like the father who is training a young son, even though you know that it's with your son or your daughter there doing a task, it's going to take you three times as longer. There is a training. There is, a, there is something much greater than getting that task done. There is something that is passed on. And that is the same way that the father relates to us, our heavenly father. You see, he wants to do things in and through us. He wants to save your loved ones, preferably with your cooperation and your help, with your influence, with your witness. He wants to make the world a better place, preferably with your help. He can do it without us, but he wants to do it through us. This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Finally, during this time of isolation, we've had to throw our net on the other side of the boat, it would seem. We've all had to make adjustments and make take a new approach to a difficult situation that none of us have had to go through I would suggest and even when we have little confidence that such efforts will will actually work we need to picture Jesus standing there next to us in a difficult situation and frustration begging us to not give up but to keep going to give it a try and in his name we obey in his name we continue in his name, we continue to be faithful and we leave the results, the fruits, the results to him. And we do it all for his glory. May God enable us to continue to trust him, to continue to trust his ways because his ways are perfect and good. Amen.